memorial service that I lead uh, begins with uh, these familiar words. We gather in that sure and certain hope of resurrection. And the words aren't familiar because I coined them or anything like that, and it's not because I've said them on so many occasions, but they're familiar because they exist and are shared amongst the larger church. And even more so, they're rooted in the promises and witness of Scripture. But although familiar, those words can oftentimes be lost in our hearts and our minds, even to our imaginations and to our ears when life creeps in. In fact, Greg Bailey will rightly point this out in a 2017 article for Plow Magazine where he says, let's be honest with ourselves and each other. In the moments when we or our loved ones and friends are facing death, the words of Jesus promising everlasting life can lose their meaning. So we do well this morning as we come to a text uh, where we see uh, the power of resurrection on display. We do well to come to this place and be reminded of that sure and certain hope that we can forget so often. I want to offer a little word of warning, though, here as we go into looking at this text. I know there is a number of folks here in our congregation this morning, whether they're here in the room now or viewing this online, joining us uh, through that medium, or even listening to this throughout uh, the week, your experience with death is a lot closer than the experience of others. Uh, it might be your own diagnosis of a terminal illness. It might be your experience with the recent loss of a loved one. And so as we come into this, I don't come to this sermon in a flippant kind of way. There will be no jokes here about meeting Peter at the pearly gates uh, because this is a serious, serious place for us to get right as the faithful as those who commit ourselves as Jesus followers. But we also need to recognize here uh, that when we think about death, that we also recognize that the final word that we sometimes tell ourselves about the finality of death is not actually the final word. And we'll see that here in this story. In fact, that final word, that last word, belongs to another. William Shakespeare calls death in Hamlet, you may recur, remember this line, calls it the undiscovered country from those born no traveler returns. In part from a very few instances where people have returned, quote unquote, uh, and certainly not in any kind of permanent way, those folks who have returned, uh, we see almost without exception, uh, they go and die again. Travelers in that country, as Shakespeare notes, do not return. We have seen this with our loved ones and our past generations, and we know that this will one day be our future, that everybody in this room at some point will not be in this room and will not be alive. We might try to deceive ourselves, but the Bible is clear on this point, and we hear this in Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that, the judgment. In John 11, it seems that, as, uh, that Lazarus has arrived at that appointed time. And in case anyone was confused as to what happened to Lazarus here, Jesus says it plainly in verse 14. Lazarus is dead. This is not, according to the princess bride, mostly dead. He's all dead. Which his sister Martha makes all the more clear when she cautions Jesus in verse 39 against removing the stone uh, that's covering that tomb 
as there already is a stench. And those who are familiar with the King James will remember these memorable words, he stinketh, is how it was rendered there. That stench would be an unmistakable odor. It would be a smell that's produced by dozens of different gases, cadaverine and putrescine being two of the more dominant uh, odors and smells. It's the smell of death, and it's a smell these ancients well knew. But even so, this odor is possibly not the most disquieting part of this whole ordeal. It may not be the most troubling piece that comes out of this story. Instead, both Martha in verse 21 and Mary in verse 32 give voice to an even greater concern. And namely, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In their thinking, Jesus the healer could have made a difference. He had done so on so many occasions. They had been probably witnesses to those. They certainly had heard uh, the stories. But Lazarus is now dead. And certainly there are limits to what one might allow their heart to expect, what we might get our imagination around. That Jesus tarried, we see that in verse 6, upon hearing of his friend's illness raises its own serious questions, and certainly questions that are not too unlike the ones that we ask even today when we face the challenges that are presented with death and mortality. When death visits our circle, or even when death's shadow is cast on our own life with troubling diagnosis or even seeing declining health, we too wonder why God seems to be quiet. Why is God absent? Why is God distant? And not just the death of our mortal bodies, but also death's visit in relationships and seasons of life, the ripples of that larger cavern we stumble toward with each passing day. We too cry out from the depths that God would hear our voice only to find that the healer appears to tarry. I imagine that this is where these sisters at this point find themselves. But yet still in verse 22, Martha's if, if only you had come, moves to a but even now. But even now. There's a tinge of hope in those words, of course, born from faith and perhaps even a faith that's surprising to her as those words came across her lips. In the moment of grief, Martha will declare, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. But as the story continues, it's clear that she may not have completely envisioned what this whatever could entail. Like her generation, living in that time in the first century, Resurrection was in the popular lexicon. People knew of resurrection, but its orientation was in the future. And you'll see she gives voice to that in verse 24. Jesus, though, is going to do something so mind-shattering, earth-shattering, creation-shattering, every category shattering in his answer to her at this point. He's going to relocate resurrection into the present and even more uh, surprising here is he's going to relocate it with his own presence there in verse 25 before her now is not this abstract or theoretical discussion or idea about coming resurrections but the actual 
resurrection and life. The very I am who gives life is now standing there. Whatever possibility there might be for future resurrection exists with and because of this person, Jesus, who has now shown up on the scene. This same one who will later be resurrected bodily and who is, as John has told us already in chapter 1, the author of life. This revelation, of course, inspires Martha, right? You hear that? You can go one of two ways with that. You can go, what are you talking about? Or you can be inspired. Martha goes the inspiration path in verse 27. She makes a declaration of belief. This friend and healer, Jesus, is now cast as something that before would probably seem maybe even way outside imagination. But she now casts him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that has come into the world. And again, hearkening back to John chapter 1, the light that has come into the world. If that is who has come to Bethany that day, then the expectation of what is possible now shifts dramatically. Ezekiel chapter 37, we heard that in our Old Testament uh, reading this morning, is cast in a valley of dry bones. The question is raised, of course, in Ezekiel 37, can these bones live? And the answer is, for the natural view, is absolutely not. When you get to the stage of being dry bones, you're done. You're just a pile of bones. Maybe we can put you up on a shelf or something, look at you if you happen to be like a cow skull or something. But regular old human bones, that's kind of creepy. So you're just bones. You're a pile of bones over there. The obvious answer, of course, and like I said, the natural course of things being no. Dry bones are the remnant of lives once lived, but no longer. That's the natural answer, but it's not the supernatural answer. It's not the faith answer. The breath of God that animating spirit that goes all the way back to Genesis, that gives life when breathed into the nostrils of human beings, it can even reanimate, as we hear in Ezekiel. The breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. So there's a place for hope in all of this. Returning to John chapter 11 once more, we, we hear this sense of hope in Jesus' own words to his disciples. Initially, Lazarus isn't presented as being dead, but rather fallen asleep, and he's to be awakened. We hear that in verse 11. That, of course, is misunderstood by his disciples, to which Jesus must speak more directly. But the notion of the dead being asleep, we shouldn't too quickly overlook that, as though this were some kind of mere euphemism. In fact, uh, we use this type of language all the time, whether we're in the church or not, whenever we say we're going to go visit the cemetery, right? You've ever been to a cemetery or use the word cemetery. That, of course, is from a Greek word which translates sleeping place or dormitory. And so even in culture, when we say cemetery, we, we give a nod to the sense of going, being asleep. But here uh, we see something that's extraordinarily biblical, and something that's definitely New Testament. In his article, Sleepers Awake, Todd Brewer examines the language of death in the New Testament. Now, it's a good article, and I'm going to post it out actually later on. I'll put it on Realm and Facebook so you can take a look at it and see the, the, the longer article there. But Brewer makes these key observations. He notes, one, that in both the Lazarus account, John 11, that we have here, and the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5, Jesus uses sleep language 
uh, to portray the person who is now dead, but will soon be miraculously returned to life. They are waiting to be awoken, is how that language plays out. Secondly, Brewer says that when Paul talks about the death of Jesus, so in the New Testament writings where the Apostle Paul's writing, he uses variations of the terms thanatos and nekros. These are both terms that speak of literal death uh, when we think about something that has literally died. The point Paul is making here is that Jesus really died. So when he talks about Jesus' death, he uses literal death-type languages or language. But then look what Paul does, though. He shifts things. Uh, Paul will use uh, this kind of language when he talks about death before death. So when he talks about like, the old life, putting to death the old life, he uses this definite death language. But Paul does something different. But when he talks about uh, biological death, he will use the word for sleep or sleep language. It's an interesting change that we see in, in Paul's writing. What Paul is doing and which draws from Jesus is indeed no euphemism, but rather hope that's located in a promise. And not only hope that's located in a promise, but one that is validated by a sign. So it's not just placed in something that someone said, but it's also located within something that someone did. I wonder who that one who did and produced the sign for us. Well, if you look at the religious leaders at the time of Jesus in John 11, just outside of our passage in verse 47, how do they respond to what has happened here they talk about jesus's many signs that he's doing this hope is that the dead in christ will be awakened by the one who not only knows them but will call them by name and will call them from their slumber and that's what we see here in john 11 and which is picked up by later new testament writers Verse 33, we see another piece here that I think is important for us to hold on to when we talk about that sure and certain hope. And it might be one of the key motivating things uh, that we say, why would would this be the way life is? Why would this be the way things happen? Why does God take action in this way to wake us from our sleep? It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. That, of course, that deeply moved is the sense that Jesus isn't happy with the situation. That God looks at the situation of death and the havoc that it wreaks on people all around, and he's moved to a place of anger. And it's important for us, to, as we look at this text and the context, to realize that he doesn't seem to be angry at the people, but he seems to be angry at the situation. That what has happened here the ripple effects of death. And we know that death not only destroys the body, but it also destroys the networks and relationships. I know in my own family, I've seen where death has uh, caused an effect on the family where the family system itself is different and relationships have changed dramatically because of it. When my dad died, things were not the same after that and they're still not the same uh, since that day that that happened. The way that we relate to each other as siblings even as different generations relate to each other. It's been changed by that. It's been profoundly marked by that. I've had friends die over the years, and it's changed the relationships between even the friend groups and the members of that friend group. And some of you know that very, very well, and you've seen that in your own life. But that's not the only response that Jesus has here in the text. Of course, we see that. We see that he's, he's, he's anger here at this point. 
There's also a second response that shows up that's a powerful response for us to hold on to. It's packed in one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Now, when you look at the translation, you might say, how can there be one that's shorter? This one, I believe, if you look at the Greek, it's 16 characters. There's one that's 14 characters, so just by two. But the translation we have in verse 35, Jesus began to weep. For many, though, you might remember the old King James or even the NIV, which uses the same style. Jesus wept might be the way that you remember it. Of course, there's uh, other uh, translations. N.T. Wright captures what is happening here with Jesus burst into tears. That's how he translates this particular one. But I like what Dale Bruner writes, his, his interpretation, a pretty unique one, but one that I think is probably the most provocative. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on John's Gospel, translates this, Jesus bawled. Jesus bawled. And Jesus bawls, according to Bruner, for several reasons, uh, including what we have already heard in verse 33. But here's the reasons that Bruner says that Jesus bawls. The world's certainty that the ultimate reality is death. Jesus bawls. He goes on to say the world's and the church's anguish in the experience of death says the deep pain that death and the devil who uses death so mercilessly both bring to human hearts. These break Jesus' heart, Dale Bruner will conclude. And he'll go on to say, death hurts everybody, including Jesus. And though many commentators throughout history see in this response of Jesus weeping an example of Jesus' true humanity, that that's what's on display, there's something more here. God grieves with our grieving. That's what shows up. And on this point, Bruner will reimagine the hymn, And can it be that thou, my God, wouldest cry, would cry with me? Of course, the response there, amazing love. How can it be? That's a consistent expression with the Jesus we witness here in John 11. The one who cries with us. The God who cries with us, even in the midst of death. My own conclusion is that God is for you, and that God loves you. And that love gave and is proved. Sometimes we get ourselves backwards and we, we imagine that God isn't for us, that we somehow have to earn uh, whatever help and recognition, whatever love that we crave from God there's an old writing in Against Heresy by Irenaeus who writes these words that I think are helpful to, to relocate ourselves in the Christian message. Irenaeus writes, In the beginning, therefore, did God form Adam, not as if he stood in need of man, but that he might have someone upon whom to confer his benefits. That God's desire is to love and to give. We might choose to live our entire lives as though that were not the case. We might look for different opportunities uh, to flee and hide from that, to run from that. But God, in God's infinite mercy, will not allow those who are in Christ to die in such a way, even though we run. And so death for those who are in Christ is more than resting in peace, right? We use that type of language. It is a sleep from which we will be awoken one day. In a March 2016 Smithsonian Magazine article, Adam Hoffman relays the story of a pediatric patient who wasn't responding to various efforts to provide care. And after that, those measures were discontinued and the patient had flatlined 
For two minutes straight, the patient was declared dead. The family wanted to spend some time with their child. And so after about 15 minutes, the mother requested the breathing tube to be removed so she could hold her daughter. And this is what Hoffman writes. And then the team witnessed the unimaginable. Soon after the breathing tube was removed, she started to have spontaneous breathing. Her heart rate came back, her color improved, and she, was, she had a gag reflex. A member of the medical staff notes, I had never seen anything like this. Of course, there's a name for this. Hoffman identifies that name in his article. It's called the Lazarus Phenomenon. And it's not the only place in our own modern era where our language has been inspired by the story of Lazarus. The impact of antiretrovirals for those living with HIV-AIDS. Uh, 2010, a Voice of America article identified the effect of these drugs as a Lazarus effect. Uses that same type of language. It's citing the experience of people living in Kenya and says this resurrection came in the form of health to alien bodies as these drugs were administered, but also a return of economic prospects. So a resurrection in, in more than one way. It's also used in reference to a semiconductor receptors rendered unusable in harsh radiation environments. If your eyes just rolled to the top of your head, you were just like me when I read that. Like, what? But they found that when those are exposed to temperatures below negative 143 degrees Celsius, they become usable again. They don't know why, they just do. That's called the Lazarus effect. And there's, of course, a 2015 horror film <laughs> called The Lazarus Effect. <laughs> In that, a serum is developed that can bring the dead back to life. Knowing the genre, I don't think anything bad could come from that, right? Okay, maybe not that one. But the story set before us in the Gospels, particularly in John chapter 11, doesn't serve or isn't intended to serve as a feel-good story for us. It's not one of those ones you wrap up with a happy ending because we know as we approach and get closer to Holy Week that there's a portion of that which will be a dark, dark valley. You can even see in John 11 the response of some is to conspire for the killing of Jesus. They want to do away with him. It's not meant to be a feel-good story for us moderns. Nor is it merely to display for the readers uh, something that's quite unexpected. Instead, it confronts us with the impossible. But the impossible doesn't stay that way for long. The impossible doesn't stay that way for long. Not in Bethany, nor the coming empty garden tomb. Indeed, as we read in Matthew chapter 19, for God, all things are possible. American playwright Eugene O'Neill imagines what some of the early words of the now resurrected Lazarus might have been at the outset of his play, Lazarus Laughed. Uh, from 1925 and I close with this of course with that title you might have already imagined what those words might be but he writes this laugh laugh with me death is dead fear is no more there is only life there is only laughter friend there is a Lazarus effect there is a Lazarus phenomenon and certainly laughter may be part of that Certainly it may bring a laughter of a kind that comes in the midst of despair and sorrow, in places where joy looked like it left the building a long time ago, that there's a joy that returns. 
But the phenomenon that the Bible describes, the one that we have by way of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is one that was wrought by the power and love of a crucified, then resurrected, then ascended and triumphant Lord and Savior who holds us in both life and in death, today, tomorrow, and forever. The same one who claims us in our baptism as God's own forever and gives us the sure and certain hope we will one day be called by name to come out, to awaken, and to enjoy that life that comes after life. May we find encouragement in that witness, which is true and has been proven in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in our own generation and every day of our lives. Friends, let us pray together.